0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Uh, all right, so if you look at the very back page on the handout that you have in front of you, um, you will see uh, a, a developing bibliography. This list will grow uh, as time goes on, no doubt. Um, but these are the sources at least consulted. The ones that I've bolded are primarily the ones that I'm using or working from tonight. I would commend, I've I've commended it a number of times, and I would go ahead and suggest this again to you, just remind you of it. There is this series that Crossway has done um, called Short Studies in Biblical Theology. They actually have several different lines one is short studies in biblical theology. One, another is short studies in systematic theology. Um, and anyway, there's a couple of different lines on that, and they all have, once you get on the line, biblical theology or systematic theology, they all have a very similar cover, so you can kind of track track where they are, but um, they come out with new ones all the time, and these things are maybe 100 pages, and they're relatively small books. You can probably get through one in depending on how fast you read, anywhere between 30 minutes and an hour and 30 minutes. You know, if you were to just read it straight through. That doesn't mean you're able to digest all the content, you know, in an hour and a half maybe, okay? But uh, they're, they're written in a way that you can read them relatively quickly. Um, and so there's a lot of really good ones. The biblical theology ones are kind of written to sort of blow your mind uh, as, you, as you think about, you know, the, the way Scripture has unfolded, the way God has, has um, divinely inspired His Word. Uh, so those are really helpful, and uh, I think I would commend them to you, and a lot of what I'm going to say tonight will come from that, from Tom Schreiner's work in that series. Uh, the ones on systematic theology are also helpful, similar kind of approach there, uh, but those are taking a topic and kind of, you know, uh, exploring that through the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures has to say about it. Okay, that being said, uh, let's we're, we're, we've moved now to the New Testament. And our goal on Wednesday night really is to, as as we've kind of gone through Scripture, we have, it took us several years, but we moved through the entire Old Testament and went through the entire Old Testament story. And so our goal on Wednesday night really is to think about the history and the development of God's Word, the story of God's Word, how it has unfolded in human history and really all the background around both the Old and New Testament. And so as we go into the New Testament, it's really important that we... we okay, we don't want to cross the Rubicon of that little divider in your Bible from Old Testament to New Testament. We don't want to cross it so much that we go, all right, out with the Old, in with the New. We're all New Testament. What we need to keep in mind is that we're still very much in the Old Testament even though we're in the New. And and I think this is a hard thing because of that little divider, you know, that it's a hard thing for Christians to get in our mind that these people that are writing down these words in the New Testament are steeped in the Old Testament. They know it like the back of their hand. Through and through, they know it better than any of us in this room do. And so, so much of what's being written in the New Testament has its roots wrapped firmly around the pages of the Old Testament. So, so much of what we're going to be doing over the course of however long it takes us to get through the New Testament is going back into the Old Testament and going, remember this, remember this, remember this, this is what they're referring to. In addition to all that, we're also keeping track of all the other things that are developing. There's actual people who are are interacting with little baby Jesus like uh, King Herod okay he's a real person in history and we got to figure out who he is and things like that which we've been talking about there's a there's a real emperor in uh, Caesar in uh, in Rome in Caesar Augustus and so we got to keep track of what's happening in Rome and so all those things come to bear and so what you kind of start to see as we talked about last week is that the Old Testament is not merely drawing to a conclusion with the New Testament. So it's not just, uh, here's how the story ends. But the Old Testament is invalidated. It's, it's meaningless without the New Testament. The New Testament actually gives it its real meaning, its purpose. The whole reason that the Bible was even written from the earliest pages, was to get to all of the things that are written in the New Testament. That's its purpose, is building exactly to that. And that we talked about several different ways that happens in this that we've, we've got to keep in mind as we go through the New Testament. There is a narratival purpose, that means the story. There's, the story is, who cares about the story unless there's a New Testament, right? Unless Jesus actually comes onto the scene, who cares about the line of David? Who cares about any of the other stuff that developed in the Old Testament unless Jesus is actually born? Now it matters, right? So the New Testament is giving it its narrative purpose, its historical purpose. Who cares about the people of Israel? Who cares that they were the people of God if there's not a New Testament, right? It doesn't doesn't matter because God then just, well, he just left them and they were just gone, right? Um, Theological... Purpose, what what does it matter that God saves? What does it matter that uh, who He is, that He's triune? What does it matter about any of those things unless there is a New Testament? Typological, what does it matter if there's a festival and a feast and a sacrificial lamb? And what do any of those things matter unless we actually come to the New Testament? And what we find out is that we see the reason in the New Testament that the sacrificial lamb was even taught to Israel to begin with. They would not have categories for understanding who Jesus was and the action that, he took, that took place there on Calvary were it not for God teaching them about the sacrificial lamb back in the Old Testament. There's so many things like this that are typological that we've got to keep in mind. Um, and obviously the covenantal purpose, which we're going to be talking about a lot tonight. So the New Testament opens with the genealogy of Jesus, and this is what we spent our time on last week. Uh, it opens with the genealogy of Jesus, and it, it, Matthew points to the fact that Jesus was the son of David. And what that meant is that all of Israel was putting the hopes of the Messiah, of the one to come to save God's people. They were putting all their hopes in whomever that child of David was going to be. And so, essentially, when Matthew opens up calling Jesus the son of David, he is introducing to Israel, maybe to some unbelieving, maybe to the church that he's a part of, maybe to everybody, all the above, he's introducing this character named Jesus as the one he's submitting to them to consider as the heir of David, the Messiah. That's what he's saying. When he says, this is the Son of David, he shows how he was the Son of David. This is the Messiah that that you're longing for, that you want, that you're hoping for. This is him. So it's important that we understand that even from those first words of the Gospel of Matthew, that's what he's doing. So the New Testament then is not telling us about a baby who's going to grow up to be king. Because that's what... That's kind of the way a secularist, a person who doesn't believe, that's how they would read the New Testament. They would say, okay, this person is supposed to grow up and he's supposed to be king of the Jews. And that is not what the New Testament is presenting. That's not what Matthew is presenting. That is not what the Magi ask Herod when they come to talk to him. Remember, Herod had been given the title king of the Jews historically. We don't learn that from the Bible. We know that historically, the Roman Senate had given him the title King of the Jews in 37 B.C. This is years before Jesus was even born. So Jesus comes onto the scene, and the Magi come to him and say, where is he who is born King of the Jews? Matthew is not presenting someone who is going to grow up to be king, but someone who by his birth is king. By his very nature is king already. And, of course, the rest of the Gospel writers are going to only affirm that. John is going to say he's king by virtue of his very nature being eternal, and God and with God at the same time, right? The second person of the Trinity. So, Matthew is presenting Jesus to his audience as one who is born king of the Jews of the line of David, okay? But that's not all that's being said in that first verse. We're not even out of the first verse of Matthew yet, all right? Uh, And I've already preached on Matthew. I've preached two-something years on Matthew, and we're going back through it again. Uh, Okay. (laughs) No groans, okay? Don't, don't, don't. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, right, okay. Uh, All right. So, there it is. All right. In addition to being presented as the son of David... Matthew also presents Jesus as a descendant of Abraham, and he then traces Jesus' lineage from Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, through Judah, which is really important. And this identification, just like it was with David, when he says he's the son of David, that, that means, hey, he's the Messiah, he's the one to come. Tracing his lineage through Abraham means that he is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So we talked about last week how he's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant because he's the child of David. God made a promise to David. You're always going to have a son on the throne, and I'm going to establish his kingdom, and it's going to be an everlasting kingdom. right? So Jesus comes in as the son of David. He is fulfilling the Davidic covenant, that promise that God made to David. But... Now we find out he's also the son of Abraham. Let's look at um, Matthew 1 1 to 2. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So he's tying the two things together, okay? Notice two things that he does to fulfill this Abrahamic covenant. He not only has to be the son of Abraham, that is virtually everyone Matthew is writing to, I mean, at least his initial audience anyway. Obviously, we're reading it, and we're not necessarily children of Abraham in in that sense, in the genetic sense. So he's writing to people, and he's saying he's a child of Abraham, he's a son of David, but he then goes in to trace his lineage specifically through which child of Abraham? Yes, Isaac, Isaac which is important, not Ishmael. He is, yes, the son of Jacob. That's important. But then, who comes after him? Jacob had how many sons? Twelve sons. They became the twelve tribes of Jacob. The twelve tribes of Israel, as Jacob is later called. So, what son does he root Jesus through? Judah. Why does he root? Jesus through Judah. Come on, somebody. That's right. So, as Israel, as Jacob, is blessing his children before he dies, he quickly moves through the first three Simeon, Reuben, Levi glad I could do that. Off the top of my head, I was worried. I started, and then I was like, oh, can I do it? Okay. Simeon, Reuben, and Levi, he moves past them, and he goes straight to Judah, and he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, is that a deviation from the norm? Why is that a deviation from the norm? Because he's not the firstborn. That's right. So he doesn't, he's not necessarily granted the the birthright and the blessing and things like that. Now, it's not necessarily outside the norm in this story that we're doing, because that seems to be more the, the pattern than the typical rule, but it is deviating significantly from the typical rule. Judah is promised the scepter. Kings will come from you, he says. And so, here we get the line of the kings. David is a child of Judah, and so then is Jesus. So, Matthew is presenting... This one Jesus, the son of David, yes, the son of Abraham, he is a descendant of the tribe of Judah, and that is important. as a fulfiller of the Abrahamic covenant. But what, what does that really mean? Well, the covenant, remember, if you'll back up just a little bit before Abraham, you have a covenant there that God makes with Noah. And what I think would be helpful for you to do sometime, just if you want to kind of just... I don't know, as you're reading your Bible or something like that in Genesis, is read the creation of Adam and Eve. Read that creation story and read what, how God speaks to Adam and Eve, the commands that he gives them, the charge that he gives them, the reason that he creates them, what he says that he's creating them for. And then flip to after the flood when Noah walks off the ark, and you'll see there's a lot of similarities between what God says to Adam and Eve and what he then turns and says to Noah. In fact, he gives Noah the same commands to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Same commands that he gave to Adam and Eve. So God blesses Noah, he blesses his family, and he commands them, be fruitful and multiply. But what do we find out right after the story of Noah. So if you're tracking with the story of Genesis, it goes Noah, chapter 6, and that story lasts all the way through chapter 9. What happens? Chapter 10 is a genealogy. What happens in chapter 11 of Genesis? Do you remember? Anybody? Anybody? Tower of Babel. Now, here's the problem with that. The command to Noah was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. In other words, you're supposed to, like Adam and Eve were, you're supposed to take the garden and spread it. Start here and work your way out. Adam and Eve didn't make it. Noah, it turns out, didn't make it at all either. His son is cursed nigh immediately after giving that charge, And then by chapter 11, we don't find everybody spreading out all over the earth. What do we find? They're congregating. And not only are they congregating, they're building a tower. What is the reason they're building a tower? So that they can get their way up to heaven. And it says God had to come down to them and confuse their language because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing and spreading out. And so what that tells us then is that even though he started over, he wiped the earth clean with everyone but righteous Noah and his family, what we find out is that sin from the garden had permeated the human heart. That was the problem. It wasn't the conditions they were in. It wasn't the, the I don't know, whatever. It wasn't bad fruit that they ate it wasn't any of that kind of stuff it wasn't anything external this was an internal problem and proof positive of that is he started over with a new person who was righteous who sought after god and noah not a day i don't know how long it was really but it seems like not a day after getting off the ark is drunk and curses his son already right and so everybody congregates They're there trying to basically become God, create gods for themselves, or something like that. And so we find out that uh, there is this human nature that underscores the judgment that they deserved for forsaking God. And so the solution to man's needs of salvation, we find out, is really not going to be able to come from a human being. If the condition is inside the human heart, it really can't come from a human being, but only from the grace of God. So, soon after, Adam, uh, soon after Noah, obviously things start spinning out, into, uh, out of control. After Adam and Eve, it certainly does. We find the same thing happening after, uh, after Noah. But what do we find after chapter 11 of Genesis, which is the Tower of Babel? What happens in chapter 12? You got it. You're building a mental picture. What is it? Abraham is called. So God. How, so we we're left with a question. Okay, God, how's this going to work? You've told mankind be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Essentially, he's wanting them as his emissaries to spread his glory around the earth. It can't happen. Didn't happen with Adam and Eve. Didn't happen with with uh, with Noah. We're O for two. What are we going to do? How is this going to be corrected? God steps in and he calls Abraham. Now here's where things take a turn and start getting very interesting. Because it's important to see, first of all, that Abraham's obedience was not the basis for his call. He certainly did obey the commission that was given to him. That was necessary for him to do. He certainly did do that. But it wasn't the basis for his call. The foundation of Abraham's call and obedience was divine election. God calls Abraham out of Ur. He chooses him as a people. He creates the people of Israel out of whole cloth, effectively. Have you ever seen him create people out of whole cloth? Do you know in the pages of Scripture, where He has done that? He has done that before, created a people out of out of whole cloth. Adam and Eve. Adam He created from the ground, whole cloth. Out of what's the expression? Is that have you heard that expression before? Creating out of whole cloth. No. What? Is this a Texas thing? I have used that expression a thousand times, and you just now tell me you weren't. <laughs> what? I think y'all on vacation. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Out of nothing. Out of whole. De- hole. Whole cloth. Whole w h o l e. This. I cannot, I am, I am tripping right now. Okay, we're going to talk about this later, all right? We'll talk about that later. Y'all apparently have not heard of whole cloth. Okay, he created people out of just raw, raw material, right? Is that better? All right. Tracking, okay. All right. Sorry, okay. I sometimes use expressions, and I did not know they were native to Texas, all right? I, I did not know so <laughs> what did you say I, I do i use a lot i was told one time that i use a lot of uh, animal metaphors and i was like i i don't know apparently how the cow ate the cabbage and so on and so forth out of old cloth out of oh oh no whole, whole cloth i may be wrong maybe one of those things that i've heard as whole cloth this whole time and it's not i don't know but I, I, anyway, forget it. We're moving on, all right? <laughs> yeah, and we find out, well, on the pages of Scripture, earlier on, he does that, right? He creates a, he creates a people in Adam and Eve. He creates people from Adam and Eve. And so here he creates um, Abraham and his family really out of, he, ch- he creates an entire people group. Out of nothing. He calls him and he says, you're my people and this is what I'm going to call you. Okay? Um, and it's out of divine election that he does that. The first move didn't belong to Abraham, but God chose him and brought him, at, that should say, out of Ur. Look at Nehemiah 9-7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. Joshua 24, 2-3. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and led him through all the land of Canaan, and made... His offspring, many. I gave him Isaac. So the Bible is replete with examples of this. God is the one doing the choosing. Out of the entire earth, He's the one that selects Abraham. Uh, in the church, we typically don't fight about election until we get to the New Testament. right? But it's right there in the Old Testament. Um, <laughs> Uh okay, so alright, so he, he calls Abraham out of divine election. I'm gonna to refer to him as Abraham, even though there's a name change in the middle, we're just gonna call him Abraham. Um what was it? Did I missed something. Okay. Um here's the thing that changes, though. With Adam, from Adam to now to Abraham. When Adam was given the charge, he sinned, and as a result of his sin, Adam is placed under a curse. And the whole, the whole human race, the earth itself, literally everything, but God himself is touched by the curse of the fall. I mean, God himself at this point, anyway. Um, it's all placed in the curse. So we look at Genesis three fourteen. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, and above the beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 3.17. And and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Um, Yeah, so everything is is cursed. And even in Genesis 5.29, he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. Curse, this one shall bring us relief. They're looking to Noah as a savior of sorts. Bring us relief from the work of our painful toil and of our hands. So they're feeling the curse that was placed on Adam as a result of his sin. But then, and then we get the Tower of Babel and everybody sins, and, and God comes down and punishes them again, and he selects Abraham, and this time things change. Because instead of giving him a curse, he promises him a blessing. Now this is really the first time that this kind of idea comes back into the fore, the things that we thought were going to happen as a result of the Garden of Eden and that didn't take place now are being promised to Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, 1-3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, time out. That's that's fine and good as long as you're reading Genesis 12, 1-3. But if you have read every chapter up to that point, you have to leave verse 3 thinking, how on earth is God going to accomplish that? Because I've I've seen this story three times played over. It doesn't work. Adam and Eve, sin. Cain and Abel, sin. Noah and his family, sin. All the people of the world, sin. How is it you can step in then and say, I am going to bless those who bless you, Curse those who curse you. The curse then is going to be restricted to those who curse you, and and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham. That's aside from the fact that Abraham doesn't have a child at this point, right? That's a whole different issue, right? It's connected, but it's a different issue altogether. How are you even going to do this? So he promises a blessing to Abraham and his family. Now the promises that God makes to Abraham are typically divided into three parts. The first promise is the promise of of offspring. Look at Genesis 12, 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So very simply put, it's offspring. Not only that, look at Genesis 17, 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. What, what is that? He's going fru- to make him fruitful and multiply him and fill the earth? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, of course. He's going to make him exceedingly fruitful. This is going to be a fulfillment of what happened with Adam and Eve. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. So we're, we're not yet even to how God is actually going to accomplish all this. But we do know at least the curtain has been pulled back a little bit. There's going to be some kings in the future that come from him. So there is not just offspring, but there is rule. There is authority. There is some sort of power that is going to be given to this family that he's going to bless, and through them all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Um, 1818, seeing that Abraham was surely shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the eight nations of the earth shall be blessed. So it's not just he's going to have offspring, but they will be great and mighty, meaning they have power and authority, and it's through the, their rule over the earth that there is going to be, that God is going to bless the earth, right? So that, that's what he's promising in the offspring. It's not just you're going to have a lot of kids. It's that you're going to have a line and that line is going to be established over as king over the whole earth. That's how the earth is going to be blessed by, by that rule. Okay, now, so the seed of the woman, in other words, I uh, didn't get there, it didn't go, still, there it is. So the seed of the woman, in other words, would be the children of Abraham... And they would rule over the serpent and his offspring. Now, if we're being really careful students of Scripture, we'll go back to, what, to the punishment that God was doling out there in the garden when they sinned, and we'll say, Genesis 3.15, you've got it there on page 3 of your handout, in your verses. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. And between your offspring, that is the offspring of the serpent, and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there is an offspring battle that's coming, and what we see in Abraham, that the offspring has been effectively named. God is sort of revealing a little more of his plan. So the promise of offspring was then later confirmed, to Isaac it was confirmed to Jacob you can see those promises there in Genesis 26:4 you'll hear the same language again i will multiply your offspring as the stars in the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and your offspring all the nations of the earth and, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed he gives that promise to Isaac he gives that pro- promise to Jacob and so there is a essentially to this promise that he's giving it's not just the number of children that you're going to have the promise that he's given is a a it's kind of a political promise to a degree right the promise of offspring is a is a somewhat of a political promise there's a political nature to it because it it it, it in their in them spreading abroad in the promises to Jacob in their spreading abroad it's implying that they would exercise power over other peoples. So, we have the picture then, and and a lot of this, mind you, is helped by what we know in the New Testament. Okay? Granted. I get that. But as we look through the lens of the New Testament, back at the Old Testament, what we're seeing is that, again, God is not just promising children. He's promising an offspring that is going to rule over everybody. The whole world. We're not just, this is not just a kingdom located in, a, in an area, in a remote place in the world or, or whatever. This is a person, an offspring that's going to rule over everything. Over everyone. Okay. Tracking so far? That's the, the promise of offspring. Sean. Yes. Oh boy. <laughs> do, how much do we have time for? Let's come back to that. We'll get there. I promise you, we'll get there, okay? Um, but yes, chew on that for a minute. Uh, consider what Jesus says to the Pharisees. That might help. Um, he says, you're of your father the devil. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I do want to answer it. I really do want to spend the rest of our time there, but we won't. Uh, so, the second element of the promise is land. Um. So it's land. He, he promises to give him land. After Abraham moved at God's direction, he was told that the land that he was going to be given would be Canaan. The land of Canaan, that area that we're talking about now, that's in the news now, um, is given to him, is promised to him. The borders of the promise are also sketched in. Abraham's offspring would possess, this is specifically told to us there in Genesis fifteen eighteen? Would possess the land from the Nile to the Euphrates, which is effectively that area, but much broader uh, than what we've seen. Which we get as at least the, uh, as far as the author is concerned, seems to be fulfilled in Solomon's time. There's hope anyway. There's optimism. Solomon, it says, and you can see um, First Kings four twenty one. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms of the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines, and to the border of Egypt. So that, that verse that's written there is, is, has hyperlinks in it. You don't see those, but they're there. In the mind of the author, he's hyperlinking that back to Genesis, where that's promised to Abraham that the people would rule over that whole area. And so they're seeing Solomon's reign, and they're going, Hey! Oh! I think we're we're getting there, right? Well, Solomon is is the one. He's the son of David. And God is going to give him this this land. And so there it is. It's promised to them. This is going part of the rule that this offspring is going to have is that he's going to possess this whole land. Right? This is going to be his his border, his his area. The third promise to Abraham, was that through him, all the nations would be blessed. Genesis twelve three. I will bless you, those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, the promise of universal blessing was confirmed to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the promise picks up the words of blessing given to Adam and Eve and to Noah. This is effectively, he's saying, look, Abram, the, the deal that I made with Adam and Eve was not nullified because they sinned. Nor did Noah catch me off guard. This is the purpose. It's through your family I'm going to do this, but we don't necessarily know how that's going to come about. In fact, Paul's going to tell us in the New Testament it's a mystery. To, it was a mystery to everyone how he was going to do this, how he was going to really accomplish this. But the covenant with Abraham was never focused solely on Israel, and that's what I want you to see here. It was never focused solely on Israel. From the beginning, there was concern that the entire world would experience blessing. If Abraham was a kind of new Adam, you might say, in that, that area, that, he, that land that he's promised, which would be effectively kind of like a new Eden, then there was a desire to see that Eden extend the entire world so that Israel would be the rulers of everybody, and that the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, would rule the entire world, and through that, God would bless the nations. You tracking so far? So if you think back, now go back and read 1 Samuel. Go back and read 2 Samuel. Go back and read the Psalms, where David is king God has made a promise to David and he's set up to rule in Zion. And they've got the temple there. And then they go and they expand the borders of the kingdom and they conquer peoples. Why are they doing that? They kill people who will not submit to God, and those who do submit to God, they take in. Why? Because of this promise. This is How God was going to bless the world. How will the pagans out there bend the knee to the one true and living God unless they come under the submission of the king who receives his direction and commendation from God and can then teach the nations how to serve God. Does that make sense? So, that's the reason they're doing the things they're doing. When, when I preach on Sundays and we talk about David being the tip of the spear of the kingdom that God is thrusting in the world, this is the kingdom that He's promised that He's building. And David is seeing that he's the first, he doesn't maybe he doesn't know if there's going to be another one come after him, but he sees that he's the first. And that he's got to carry on what God has given to him, because he's introducing the world to the one true and living God, and he's supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Do you remember when he goes to Hanun and he, he tries to uh, bless him, and he and they he cuts off his beard instead. the guy, the guy cuts off the servant's beards and sends and sends him half naked back to David. And David is like, well, why would you, you know, scorn my blessing? What well, turns out his men had said, he's not really trying to bless you. No, he really is, because he sees this as his job. His job is to bless the nations, but those who curse him, what is going to happen? God is going to curse. And God is going to curse through David's army. Right? So he's going to go out and do that. But, but it's, you have to understand, they are blessing the entire world. That is the goal, because that's that's the mission. That's what God had promised, and they see that as their fulfillment. It must come as a real shocker then when you go into exile, and you lose your throne. Wait. Wait, what? What happened to the, you'll bless the nations through me, through me all the nations, what happened to all that? So you can imagine that once they go into exile in 722 out in Assyria, And then in 605, 597, and 587, that those three exiles to Babylon, they eventually kind of go, where are you? Then a few more prophets come along, and then 400 years of silence. Where are you? We're being ruled by people. So they eventually give their allegiance over to the Maccabees, who then established some kind of a throne, but they're still kind of ruled by everybody, by the Greeks and then the Romans. And then, okay, God, what are you going to do? So the zealots come along and they go, let's overthrow Rome. Let's see if we can establish this kingdom that God promised us from the beginning. Well, the Essenes are out there in the wilderness going, no, he's going to send somebody, just trust him. And they're like, I'm tired of trusting him. What is this? Where where is God going with all of this? So what then do we get eventually when Matthew opens his gospel with this is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's saying this is the fulfillment of all that we were hoping for. Through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. No, no not just Abraham, not just David. This child. Wait, wait, through this child, he's going to rule all the earth. All the earth is coming under His throne. Not just an area in the Middle East. All the earth is going to come under His rule and His reign. People of every nation are going to be blessed through this child. So in the mention of two people in one verse, Matthew is laying out a substantial promise for his gospel. This is the king. This can only be fulfilled and realized through this one, Jesus Christ. Okay, now, that's a lot of Old Testament stuff. But I want to take us to the New Testament, and now through that lens, let's read just a couple of verses from Paul, all right? I realize Paul, even Peter says, Paul says a lot of hard things. very end of your verse packet, this would be page 7. Galatians 3, 16. I want you to hear what he says. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. We read that, right? Through you and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Made to you and your offspring. Which is who? Well, Jacob and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Israel and all the 12 tribes on it. No. Paul says, It does not say, And to offsprings. Referring to many. But referring to one and to your offspring. Who is Christ? He cut everyone in Israel out. You see that? He said, Abraham, Jesus... The promise that God made to Abraham when he said through you and through your offspring, I do not mean Isaac. I do not mean Jacob. I do not mean Judah. I do not mean all the rest of his family. I mean Abraham and Jesus. I'm going to bless the nations of the earth. So in that phrase... Paul is basically saying that God's intention was to say all the nation of Israel is a pipe through which one person is coming into this earth. And he's going to fulfill all that was promised. So then, when Paul writes 2 Corinthians 1.20, filter this verse through that For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So now we're getting a picture from the first verse of the New Testament. If you are not reading all the Old Testament and all of what comes in the New Testament through the lens of this whole thing is about Jesus, then you are reading it wrong. So we can talk all day about all the things that were going on at the time, and history, and all those things are important and vital, or I wouldn't have spent six years teaching them. But, if we're not reading 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and I don't belabor the point, of how this passage actually connects to Jesus, and how this is preparing us to understand the gospel better, then we're simply reading the Bible wrong. Period. And if you do that with the Old Testament, you will not understand the New Testament. Because the New Testament authors are steeped in the Old Testament, and they're taking every passage in the Old Testament, and they're reading it in light of Christ. And they're showing everybody in their churches, and they're showing everybody in their homes exactly how this passage brings us to the foot of the cross. And if you can't see that, then you're not understanding. it. Period. Questions. Let's first deal with questions before comments. Any questions? Yeah. Yeah, so we know that they're, they're, they only had the Old Testament, all right? So they, when they first got started, and everybody's going, hey, Jesus rose, and then he ascended, and he just left us here. What do we do on the first Saturday or Sunday or whatever? What do we do with this first weekend that we've got to ourselves? Well, we've only got the Old Testament. Okay, well, let's just go into the synagogues, and let's just read the scrolls like we always do, And let's go, instead of just reading Isaiah 53 and saying, well, wasn't Isaiah cool, let's talk about how Isaiah 53 is preparing us for the cross of Jesus that just happened 50 days ago, and we can point you to that and tell you what happened and share with you the good news of Christ. So so when you're sharing the gospel with people, you understand this. The gospel is good news because it is a proclamation. It's news. You are a paper boy. That's what you are. And the headline reads, Jesus is king over all the earth. That's the headline. When you share the gospel with somebody, you are reading to them the headline. Jesus is king over all the earth. And if you've got more than five seconds, then you tell them the rest of it. You just read the story out loud to them. Here's how we know he's king of the whole earth. First of all, he was God's son. He came to the earth, God's son, God being king over everything, the son being king, right? Inheriting the kingdom. Okay, it makes sense now. He's God's son. All right, good. We're sinful. He came to save us and create a people for himself. Have you heard this story before? Yeah. He created a people for himself back in the Old Testament to prove he could do it. And here in the New Testament, he dies creating these people, solidifying them under his name. Because the problem with David is that he had these people, and they were a stiff-necked people. And they worshipped idols. But now what Jesus has done in being the only kind of king that could be, is that he was human and he was God. So he then was able to actually accomplish all the things that God had for man to do, and to rule. We couldn't do it. But Jesus can. Right? So you're you're basically declaring to them the news that because of Jesus' resurrection, he is king over the world. So what do you do then? What do you do, sinner, that I'm talking to, I'm sharing the gospel? What do you do? Bend your knee to the king through repentance and through faith. And he welcomes you into his kingdom. That's it. That's what you're doing. It's the essence of what we're doing when we share the gospel. Other questions? That's a lot of stuff. Outside of seed of the serpent. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there, we'll get there, we'll get there. Yeah. Jesus got a lot of Pharisees to deal with. Okay, is there anything else? All right, good deal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We are grateful for your word, we're grateful for really all of it, just everything that you have given to us. We could spend our lives here and never exhaust this verse, son of David, son of Abraham. Um, You have given us so much to think about, so much to chew on, so much to learn, so much to appreciate about this whole story unfolding over millennia about the authenticity and the validity of the Bible itself and this unified story that's being told from page one to page whatever, end of Revelation. What an amazing thing that we can see unfolding. Sometimes even the authors don't fully see. We are helped in every way by your word, and we're grateful for it as it shapes us, as it corrects us, as it trains us in righteousness. So we pray that you would give us help to understand it. And as we understand it, come to know more of who you are. That it would deepen our worship of you and our desire to share this good news with other people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.